hear our prayer today with that resounding yes. We intercede concerning a situation that has weighted every one of us down. Oh Lord, that you would send helpers, but Lord, we pray that our nation's leaders, even as Jesus said, or concerning Jesus in Psalm 2, the nation's rage, and we pray against it. We pray against Putin and those with him, that they would be caught up short, that they would not sleep, that they would not rest for a minute at night, and you would awaken their consciences, and you would use good people who would help him to see that these are atrocities. Hear our prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen. Very difficult time, and if you're not aware of it, there is just wars, and there are unjust wars. If you ever get a moment to do it, you can go online and find what a just war is. Our leaders for decades have used it and making decisions about war, and I know war is ugly. My son was in war. He's never been the, the same since, and so we know it's ugly. We know it's wicked at times. We know it's, well, I don't need to keep saying it, but, but I would ask you to continue to pray. There will be a, uh, a change, whatever it is, and maybe our nation's leaders need to stand up, but my opinion it's demonic, it is wicked, it is barbaric, it is unnecessary, and we as Christ's people need to call it what it is. So for today, how do we live? We're in a series on Philippians, what a joy, the epistle of joy, and we're going to look at what I, can, what I started last week and continue, so what treasuring Christ produces. Now, for sake of Defining that, what does that mean? To treasure, it means to take care of, it needs to love, to nourish, to consider it valuable as it really is. And what we're going to look at just briefly, we're kind of mixing a couple things together. Paul's amazing change from someone who was persecuting the church and even helping with the killing of Christians, we'll be talking about violence just a little bit ago. But what happens to the Apostle Paul, I think it's the explosive power of a new affection. It's not just a change of the mind, though that certainly is true, but he has a change that can only be explained by a miracle. And we remember Acts 9, I mentioned it last week, where Saul, still not called Paul, Saul is on his way to Damascus. Stephen has just been stoned. Mark that. Saul is at Stephen's stoning. In fact, they lay, his, lay their garments, the ones who are stoning Stephen, the first martyr, they lay their garments at whose feet? It says a young man named Saul. He's a murderer, a persecutor of the church. He's on a rampage. He has an aim in mind, and that is to do away that which was contrary to his understanding of faith. And then we look briefly at Galatians chapter 2, reminding ourselves, which fits with what Paul's saying here. We know that a person, verse 16, chapter 2 of Galatians, 
Same author, different book, yet we know that a person is not justified, another word, made right, accepted before God by works in order to be justified by faith, rather in Christ and not by works of the law. A memory verse, a reminder, take a moment. And by the way, if you don't like memorizing, I would just suggest this. Read it 50 or 100 times and pretty soon it starts becoming very, very familiar to you. I talked to an uh, individual who preaches all across the country and he said, I, I rarely memorize scripture, meaning I don't sit down and keep repeating it, repeating it with the intention of memorizing, but I read it and read those verses around it. And he said, as long it starts taking root in my own life. But my argument this morning is that treasuring Christ is the basis for the transformation of our lives. And then we look at three points. And we're going to look at number one here. And let's pray briefly as we go forward. Father, again, we submit ourselves to you. God, we are your people, the people of God. We are your children, the sheep of your pasture. We are your church that you promised you will build, and the gates of hell will not overrun it or overtake it. You will prevail. So, Father, in the name of our risen Savior, we ask you again to apply these things to our heart, that we might leave refreshed, hopeful, maybe convicted if necessary, changed, that we might be in alignment with your purpose for the church, that we might be conformed to the image of your son. Romans 8, 28 and 29. So guide us to that end. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we looked last week at treasuring Christ brings confidence through the spirit. Finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. In fact, it is safe for you. Then we had a change Seems almost demeaning, but Paul is very concerned what's happening in the church there. He said, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh and had to do the circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, that's I think another version, who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, as an aside, these what they were called, these men who were likely men coming into the church were imposing on the church some Old Testament law, particularly circumcision. They were called Judaizers. They were no half-hearted people. They were soliciting, I think, the favor or they were soliciting people within the congregation to follow them in this new commitment. It is noteworthy, I think, to look at it and not to think they were asking for a substandard religion. In fact, they were calling, old term, for a supersized religion. And they were calling the Philippians from junior varsity to varsity. And Paul says, a thousand times, no. They were a zealous people, these Judaizers. And who did they look for? Those who were vulnerable. Often, cults, they go looking where? On the fringes of Christian faith. They go fishing in the shallows and they find someone 
And they say, you've been on the JV all your life, and now we're going to get you on the varsity. And you can see how compelling it is. And Paul is trying to deliver them from people like what he was. And we're going to look at that in a minute. But that's often what we need to be aware of. When someone comes and says, I have a new enlightenment. I have something new that you should add to what Jesus did for you. Then you will no longer be a lesser. You will be a superior. And Paul says... That whole thing is of the flesh. So we'll look at that word just for a minute. The word flesh, sarks in the Greek, it's used five times in Philippians. Two times, it's used for skin and bones. Flesh, we know what that is, right? The physical body. But then it takes on a new meaning for Paul, and particularly Philippians chapter 3, the word flesh now changes to what one does in religious in the religious realm, devoid of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. It becomes something spiritually negative. It's not a mere reference to the body now, but to being a reference to what one does or what one puts their confidence in. So Paul begins to define these terms a little bit different. You have to pay attention to that or you could get confused when you read them, and that's why sometimes I think commentaries are helpful. They help us see these things. Go, oh, I didn't see that. So we looked at that. That first of all, treasure in Christ brings confidence because now he goes on to say, those who are truly back up one, those who are truly his believers are those who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in what Christ has done, and put no confidence in that fleshly or fleshly ideas. Number two, we looked at this. <clears throat> if anyone else, excuse me, number two, treasuring Christ disarms false assurances. When did this happen, by the way? Was Paul was converted on the path from Damascus? He's, I just thought the cutest thing yesterday. I was thinking about the apostle Paul, how the Bible truths come, but I was driving through a little town called Aiken. You know where that is. And there was a young boy, I bet he was 10. It was so moving. His grandpa, obviously, who was blind, he had his arm in this 10-year-old's under his arm, and they're walking down the street carrying pizza from the local pizza shop home. It made me think of the Apostle Paul. Struck blind, and they have to lead him so he gets to the right place. And then Paul's life is turned right side up. But Paul's life is turned right side up from a false religion. Now understand, some of these things, there's seven of them named here, seven named here, that he thought set him aside or made him superior to those who were around him. And he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence, here it is, in the flesh, or but what I've done or who I am, I should have more. And then he gives a self-portrait. We don't have time to go through all of them, but just a couple. Circumcised on the eighth day. You go, what's that about? He was an eight-dayer. If you were an Ishmaelite, you were circumcised at age 13. If you were a proselyte, a convert, 
you obviously were circumcised when you converted. Paul said, I was at the very front. I'm an eight-dayer. I'm an orthodox Jew. Now remember, what he's talking about here is not internal change. He's talking about things, rituals, law-keeping that he had, and many others, had reasoned that this makes me acceptable to God. So let's stop. What makes you acceptable to God? Your perfect behavior? Yeah. Your heritage? No. I had a guy once tell me, you don't understand, Pastor Ron. My parents started this church. He had embezzled $10,000. I said, I don't care if your parents started this church. You don't embezzle $10,000 as a church treasurer. But he had this self-portrait that you would think he's, a, he's the best on the planet. In fact, you could see where he was a leader. Circumcised on the eighth day, people of Israel, the Jew of Jew, tribe of Benjamin. What's his name? Saul. Who was the tribe of Benjamin? Saul. A Hebrew of Hebrews. He spoke Hebrew fluently. He hung out with the Hebrews. He was pro-Hebrew. He says, I'm a Pharisee. He was a religious leader. He knew the law from front to back, back to front. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. How about his righteousness? External righteousness. Under the law, blameless. You're going, really? He's not accepted? Well, he does his own spiritual audit. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted it. Not as a credit, but a debit. Why? Because it was taking him into the ditch. He should have had confidence. Maybe this defines you. I won't tell you what church I grew up in, but you probably know. I went to church every week. I was in church, I'm guessing, from to age 21, I was baptized. 12 to 1,300 times. Never heard the gospel. So Saturday nights, if we had Saturday night church, I went. I obviously kept the law. I had my little list. Our church had, its only, had a lot of lists. And we basically externally kept them. You can see how this could happen to someone. Maybe you're there. You went to church. You checked out the box. You went to confirmation. You went to whatever it might be. But it became a box that you checked off, and it was, in your mind anyway, gave you acceptance to God. And he says, I count it, actually, go back to number two. I count it as a loss. Mark this, for the sake of Christ. You could interpret that to mean because Christ really needs me, and he really needs my skills, my evangelistic ideas, my church growth ideas. No, I think it should be understood for the sake of knowing Christ, because he's going to repeat that. But Paul's looking back at his life, and he says, if anyone could be accepted, pointing back to the Judaizers, it would be me. But then he says this, beginning with verse 8. After he does a spiritual audit, he says, it's not only a loss, 
This is progressive. I count everything as loss. Are you seeing it? The word everything? Everything. But then there's a divine cause, and we need to really zoom in on this. Because of what? Because he just thought, it wasn't fun anymore? No, something caught his heart. Look what caught his heart. Because of the surpassing or infinite worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Are you seeing it? He's not changed because he had an epiphany of sorts that we would, in his mind, his whole heart has changed. He said, knowing Christ is not just a good idea, but it has infinite worth. He did the math. He said, all this, he hasn't, he hasn't quite finished. I've suffered the loss of all things in order or that I would even call them rubbish. In the Greek, some have actually translated that to mean poop. But it's refuse. It referred to that which they threw out, the garbage. They threw it out and said it's no longer useful. He's coming out of, could I say it, madness. He was a madman. He was out of his mind. Have you ever thought about this? Who would Paul be today if he hadn't been converted? Or back then, I should say. He wouldn't still be alive. Who would have he been? Putin. Hitler. Lenin. Or a serial killer. Or a continual killer. I asked somebody this this week. Maybe we should all ask ourselves this. Where do you think you would be without Christ? Maybe you converted when you're 21 like I was. Somebody told me this week, I would have probably been in an insane asylum. Back then, what's what they called them? Hospitalized. Dead. Or in such a mess, I would be a hermit. Whew. But it's the explosive power of a new affection but also of infinite worth of knowing Christ Jesus. I count them all lost. I count them now rubbish. What's he doing? He's going from a do-it-yourself religion to what is a genuine, authentic Christianity. It's what we call transformation, which follows regeneration. He says, I count it all rubbish, and then I italicize it, but it's three words in order that, of very, very importance. It could be result. In order that, as a result, I would gain Christ, or it could be purpose, in order that I may gain Christ. Scholars think it's both, result and purpose. Isn't that cool? So the result of counting all this as not what I need to do to be accepted, to say what Christ has done is sufficient, and in doing so, I get Christ. No more do-it-yourself religion. And what's it based on? Faith. And the verse 9, but he says, it's not having a righteousness of my own. Because faith... Does what? 
works in an abandonment of our works and efforts. And what does Paul say when I give up, when I go from there, when I leave that behind me, and I put my faith in Christ Jesus, I get his righteousness imputed to me. That's the doctrine, at least one that comes out of this. His righteousness is imputed to me. My sin is imputed to him. It's what they call double imputation. We have at least one conversation about that. So my sin is imputed to Christ. His righteousness is imputed to me or put on my ledger. And when God looks at me, he doesn't say, you know something, your righteousness doesn't quite measure up. He sees us rather as righteous in Christ, fully accepted. Now, let me tell you something. You need to know this. That's what you fall back on when you fail. There are men and women, you know, who walk through life and say, I think he loves me, I think he doesn't. I think he loves me, I think he doesn't. I think Paul lived that way. Did I do everything right? Oh my, I might have had, I wonder if I missed something. This introspection that's unhealthy. But Paul says, not having my righteousness, but that which what? Comes from God. That's a good source, isn't it? It's germane to God. It's what God gives us. And so its source is eternal. It's God himself who gives that righteousness to who? To those who put their faith in Christ Jesus. And it depends or is nourished continually by faith. We got to move along. But then Paul makes this amazing conclusion about his own life. Treasure in Christ does what? It restores God's design. Here's what he says, that I might know him. That I might know him. Was it Adam and Eve? Forfeit. Fellowship with the living God. They were made, here it is, to be God-knowers. That's why people think when we get to heaven, we're going to play harps. I doubt it. It's going to be an explosion of God's glory. And we will never get to the end of it. It's eternal. It's in Ephesians, by the way, if you want to read it. We'll see one degree of glory to another. But Paul's confession here is, I think it is, that I might know him. And so Paul's saying, you know what Adam and Eve, you know what they forfeited? Jesus restores to me. Is Paul perfect? No. Are you perfect? No. Am I? No. But he restores what was lost at the fall. What was lost at the fall? Four separations at the fall. They were separated from God, separated from community. Remember, they'd have trouble relating, separated from conscience, you knowing good and evil. What's the fourth separation? From creation. Paul said, those are restored. In fact, they're restored progressively as I what? Know him. So question, what's the ethos of this that I may know him? It could be lament. I doubt it. Like, oh, I wish I knew him. I don't know him that I may know him. Nope. Is it cavalier? Like, sure would be good to know him. If I knew him, you know, things would be different. Or is it explosive? That I might know him and, here it is, know it's germane to knowing him or connected. You can't disconnect them. 
In the, in the original language, these come right together. They are integrated. Then I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Anyone here want to have power? I want to have power over sin. I want to have power over attitudes. I want to have power over thinking false thoughts about my salvation. I want power to love people. I want, here it is, that I might know him. That's the ethos of it. Paul is a totally different individual. A number of years ago, I was on the sh- walking along near the shores of Lake Superior. And I met this woman. We had the conversation. My family was there. They're playing in the lake and a little bit off of it. And I met this woman. We started talking about spiritual things. I said, well, have you ever thought about the claims of Jesus? And she kind of looked down. And she said, well, this is going to surprise you. But I actually think that I'm Jesus. That was quite a discussion. For Paul, he knew exactly who Jesus was. And he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. But who's the him? The swear word that our culture uses? Or is he the son of God? Is he the risen one? Is he the very creator of the universe? Is he not God in the flesh? Do we not need to listen to his promises and his claims. And how many people do we know? I know probably a dozen who have said, I'm never coming back to church because of those Christians. And sometimes they do reject the church because we haven't been always good examples, right? They could be excuses. But there may be an answer. Maybe we should send them to the Bible to see what Jesus says about himself. How about this? I'm the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. I am the vine, you are the branches. You abide in me, and I in you. I will bring forth in you much fruit. Divine passive, he does it as we abide. John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. This is red zone Christianity. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. John 10, 9, I'm the door. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. So what is germane to knowing him is all that he has for us. Paul's passion is to be a disciple. Could I just say that? That's a disciple. That isn't just an apostolic, some kind of benefit that he got, a perk to know Christ. That's, okay, here it is. Application number one, that is the chief occupation of our life. Well, some of you might say, no, it's to love God. What's the means of loving God? The Holy Spirit. But if you back up just one or two pages in your Bibles, you have this. God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer. Paul's praying. Paul's praying. It is my prayer that your love may abound. That's right. Love's supposed to abound. There's more to it. More and more. Increase. Progressive. With all knowledge. Mark chapter 3. And he appointed 12 whom he named as apostles. So Jesus, Mark's telling what Jesus did. It's a narrative. So that they might, here it is, 
be with him. That's our calling. Three applications. Paul reasoned regarding confidence in the flesh. Probably deductive reasoning. He looked at it all and he said, okay, here's my conclusion. How would he ever come to that? Where does Paul hear the gospel? If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 7. That is the martyrdom of Stephen. And you know what Stephen does? It's one of the greatest, next to Jesus preaching, sermons in the Bible. He goes all the way back through history, and then he gives the gospel. And who's standing there? We talked about this earlier. Saul, a young man. They drop their cloaks at Saul's feet. Why do you drop your cloaks at Saul's feet? So you can have oomph when you throw a rock. And Paul's standing there watching this, probably from a distance. You want to get too close. And Stephen's body is bleeding. His head is crushed. And Paul has to go home that night and try and sleep. He knew he was becoming a person he was never intended to become. An animal. Number two, some important doctrines. Well, the doctrine of imputation, very important. The doctrine of the Son of God. The doctrine that Jesus is not dead. I thought they talked to Protestants and I'm going, really? Is your Jesus dead? Paul says, that I might know him. That's a progressive, active term. That I might want, continue to know him. Isn't that glorious? If you've got little children, you know what they are? They're God sponges. Help them know God. And pour it on, carefully and wisely. But when you do devotions, you can stop and say, what does that teach us about God? You do devotions? Don't just do it with children. I was doing it this week going, what does that teach me about God? And pretty soon you go, well, that's who God is. Then I might know him. Now, there's two words for know, generally used in the New Testament, used by Paul, oida, which means a knowledge of, yeah, I know so-and-so. I know something about this. I know something about that. But then there's another word. There's actually three, two or three other words. But the word that's used here, it's gnosko. It means, literally means intimate knowledge. It means experiential knowledge. It means that when I fellowship, I'm knowing him, I am changing inside. And Paul said, that is my passion now. So you might be an engineer, you might be a carpenter, you might be a pastor, you might be a homemaker, wherever you are, your chief occupation is to know God. Doesn't that help a little bit? You say, well, I want to make money. And that story is told of a Duke professor. He was a business professor, and he asked the class, when you leave here, what would you like me to teach you before you leave? Because you're going to leave. Almost without exception, everyone said, make me a money-making machine. No. Make me a God-knowing machine, O oh Lord, by the Spirit. The work of the Spirit. Lastly, what are we giving ourselves to? 1 Corinthians 8.3 But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Let's have the worship team come and we'll pray through some of this and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper with joy that he has finished 
what he started. And he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus. So let's pray these things into our lives. Father and our God, we pray. None of us probably is where the Apostle Paul are, but I do know this at Grand Rapids E Free. There are many in full alignment with Paul has said here that I might know you. Oh Lord, ignite others. Fan into a larger frame, flame, a frame of mind that says, I want that to be my aim in life. That the middle of the target is there and every arrow I shoot, I shoot in such a way that I might know him and then that which is germane to it and the power of his resurrection and the help when I'm in suffering with joy and anticipation the resurrection from the dead where I will be with him. Lord, thank you for these great truths. As we go now, as we have been in your very presence to celebrate the Lord's table, that you will be pleased. In Jesus' name, amen.